for our Canadian lifters. Pure passion, real results, what you put in your body should matter. Pure Vita Labs PVL supplements are clean, tested, and approved. Powering athletes for over 25 years. They also power the KOTL podcast. You could trust PVL. Use code KOTL15 for partnership pricing at PVL.com. Six-pack lap it at. Arian Messi Messi is back. He was gone at Canadian Nationals. Missed a couple podcasts. And um, Matt Gary, the GOAT handler, here on The Verge, we had said previously, literally wrote the book about handling. And here we are again, my friend. Um, and for this podcast, um, I think Arian's going to take the lead. It's only stands to reason because anyone who listens knows Arian, not only uh, a coach for programming with the strength guys, but also multiple time coach at the world championships. And, um, I mean, the first time I ever met Arian was at a world championships and he was one of the head coaches. So he's been in the battles. This is his thing. Uh, whenever on the podcast, everyone who listens, when they fucking hear like rules and stuff or, or any kind of like going through the rule book or what's the, they're like, we're waiting for Arian's input and Arian always takes the lead. Or if I get messages, like ask Arian this. Um, <laughs> so he, he's the guy, but, uh, but anyways, no further ado. Uh, first off, Matt, thanks for sending us the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let Aria go in there and I'll jump in for some stories and questions as well, but yeah. And I, and I always tell people, like I took all, all my coaching courses, the USAPL's three levels. I took all three with Matt. Um, and the first time I met Matt was 2012 raw nationals in clean Texas. And back mm-hmm. then I was asking him like, Hey, how can I get into like national team coaching? Like you did. And he told me the story about how he got into it and said, this is how I recommend doing it. And that's how I got started. Um, on the podcast, a lot of times we dive right into the topic, but I want to like go over your background some more, Matt, so people may not know about it. So if yeah. we could just start off, like give us a brief history of like what sports you played and how you transitioned to powerlifting and then powerlifting coaching. Yeah, I would say, uh, first of all, thank you both for having me. It's just an honor to be here. I'm really excited um, talking about um, this book and it's been a passion project of mine. And then clearly just game day coaching in general, which is just, Man, that's there's nothing that gets my motor running quite like uh, coaching lifters on game day. But to answer your question, um, football was my main sport growing up, man. That's what I played from. You know, I played soccer when I was really young, probably six and seven years old. And and I was rather aggressive and was running into kids. And a lot of the coaches, you know, kept telling my mom, like, you got to, you know, you got to get a helmet and some pads on this guy. Like, like he's, he's doing things on the soccer field that he's probably should be doing on the football field. So, so football, I gravitated toward football after that. And I played all through high school and um, after college, um, uh, or I'm sorry, after high school, I, I walked on at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Um, I had I'd gotten some offers to to play football at some Division three schools like Holy Cross and some other places. But um, I decided to go to Baylor in Texas, which was Division one. And I wasn't quite good enough. So I walked on. But I ended up earning a partial scholarship and some financial aid that they do for some of the walk ons and so forth. Um, and I was it. So I was I redshirted my freshman year and then I um, transferred back to the University of Maryland because I, I lived in Maryland. Uh, so I was a long way from home and Waco kind of turned out to not really be my thing. So I killed two birds with one stone and came home and went to Maryland and started studying kinesiology because my strength coach at Baylor was the guy who turned me on to 
to, to kinesiology. So um, I decided not to really pursue football much anymore when I went back to the University of Maryland. But when I got out of college, um, I actually kind of picked up um, football again. And um, I knew somebody that was playing for uh, a semi-pro team. And so I, uh, he knew that I'd played in, uh, you know, at Baylor or so forth, or that I'd walked on, that I had some skills. So anyway, long story short, I tried out for the semi-pro team and I wound up, wound up playing one year of semi-pro. Um, I was a strong safety. I played one year with the DC Metro Bulls. Um, and um, yeah, so I played one year of semi-pro. And then a few years later, I actually went to a, to a scouting combine. They have these regional pro scouting combines. So like naturally, you know, for the NFL, if you're invited to like the combine, which is typically in Indianapolis, they, they have these regional combines throughout the, throughout the United States and different parts of the country. And they had one in Baltimore and I went to this regional combine and I wound up getting um, had some scouts on me there because it was some pro scouts and some semi pro scouts. And as I would played a year of semi pro and I went to this combine, um, I actually got invited to um, a couple of other tryouts. So I ended up trying out with the Toronto Argonauts, believe it or not. They came for the. Yeah, for the CFL. So they had some tryouts in Washington, D.C. And based on my performance at the Combine, they invited me down to this tryout uh, in D.C. And so I went down there and had that tryout. And then, um, yeah, you know, after the, after a tryout like that, it's kind of like, you know, thank you for this information. Thanks for the tryout, et cetera. You know, uh, don't call us. We'll call you type of thing. <laughs> so, so I never really heard back from them. Um, but yeah, so I had a couple of tryouts with them and an arena league team and so forth. And um, yeah. And then it's, you know, the, the, the dream kind of fizzled and this was all kind of simultaneously, like right around 1995 ish, if you will, when I was uh, working as a strength and conditioning coach at a local high school. And that's right around the time that my powerlifting career kicked off and I started competing. So I started competing in 1995. So I've been at this thing for 28 years. Um, and, and, you know, I, I knew about powerlifting when I was younger, but never really knew about the competitive aspect of it until like 1995. Um, I trained at a facility that was near the University of Maryland. And it was like the powerlifting mecca in Maryland. It was called Maryland Athletic Club. And this is where Kirk Karwaski was training, um, you know, Captain Kirk. And, um, and of course, my wife Susie was training there. And there were some other national team members who were training there. But as far as, um, you know, for Maryland and powerlifting goes, that's kind of where I went. And back then, of course, this is all pre-internet and pre-social media, obviously. And so you learn about powerlifting meets just from word of mouth or you see some, some uh, flyer hanging up on a bulletin board. And that's how you kind of picked out a powerlifting meet. So, so I started going to these powerlifting meets locally. And I literally had a notebook, like a legal pad in my hand. And I would walk into the warm-up room with and ask questions of the lifters um, after the competition. Like I didn't want to interrupt them, you know, in between while they were warming up. But like after the competition, I'd go back there and I had I felt like such a nerd. I had my notebook and I would be asking people these questions like, hey, you know, you know, how, what's your training like? And how do you, how do you decide how to pick numbers? And like, like, you know, how did you get here and all that, you know, just like a sponge, just trying to soak it all up. So anyway, all that is to say is that I kind of got my start in the sport right around 1995. And um, yeah, the competition aspect just kind of took off from there, but I didn't really get into formal coaching until the early 2000s. Um, just a couple of questions as far as that, from when you were doing yeah. all the, um, football stuff and doing the combine with that. Do you remember like what you could do 225 for reps? Yeah, I think only my best for 225 for reps was like 15, but I was, you know, somewhere around there. 
Um, and that was probably, I was weighing like maybe a buck 90, a buck 95 at the time. So yeah, my bench wasn't great. I think my best 40 time was like about a four seven. So, I mean, you know, not blazing fast, but playing that strong safety position, I'm kind of like an extra linebacker. And I was just, you know, a really good tackler, really physical and so forth and not afraid of contact. So, um, you know, definitely not afraid to stick my nose in there and, 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 and get my face mask dirty, so to speak. So yeah, those were kind of, um, some of the metrics. Nice. And then as far as like the powerlifting scene in 95, when you're first getting into maybe just in like in Maryland, like, like, what was it like? Like, what'd you know about like different federations? What was the big name back then? Yeah. So this is pretty, so, so back then the USPF, which stands for United States powerlifting federation, they were the affiliate into the IPF. So everybody that I knew was essentially competing USPF um, to get into the IPF, or you competed what is called ADFPA, which is the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Association, which as you know, Arian, of course, was the USAPL before the USAPL. So you really had these two, those were kind of the two main federations, at least in that area, um, the ADFPA and the USPF. So if you wanted the opportunity to go to like an IPF Worlds, um, you went the USPF route because they were the affiliate. And at the time, they didn't do out of meat testing. They didn't do in meat testing until you got to nationals. And then of course, until you got to worlds. So there was no drug testing essentially at the local level with USPF, but um, we were, I was just basically doing that because that's kind of where everybody was going. So some people were competing in the ADFPA, but the talent pool was so much smaller, you know, and if you wanted to get up to quote unquote, the big leagues, you'd lift with the USPF. So I think it's one of those situations where you kind of just go with the federation that is, convenient in terms of logistics and geography. You know what I mean? If you'd, if you'd have lived in another state, it might've been like the APA or something like that, or the APF, like Ernie France back then and so forth. But it was just that the USPF was big in my area. So that's naturally where I gravitated towards. So I competed in USPF. Um, and I actually competed at, um, at the USPF it was called the senior nationals that was in 1997 in philly that was right before the usapl became that was the last year that the uspf was the ipf affiliate and i competed at the same competition as like jeff douglas and i think and ed ed cohen was there and kurt karwaski and um yeah i remember going in for like to check my weight on the scales like the day before a competition and i'm like a really light 90 kilo lifter and I'm in there with Jeff Douglas. And if you know who Jeff Douglas is, I don't know if that rings a bell for you, Ryan, but he's like on the same level as like a Tony Harris. This, mm. this cat's he, he's Newt Douglas's father. They're really big in the equip scene down in Mississippi. And uh, anyway, I'm in the, I'm in the uh, dressing room, you know, getting weighed in and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, this dude is 90 kilos. I'm like, man, you gotta be kidding me. Like what the hell have I got myself into? Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was kind of my first exposure to like a national level scene was that was going to watch in 96, seeing Kirk and Eddie and so forth. And then, of course, the next year, by virtue of me being a state champion, that was kind of the qualifying procedure back then. If you were a state champ, that kind of gave you like an automatic bid to go to nationals. So I was able to go to nationals in 97 and, of course, got my clock cleaned. But anyway, um, yeah, that was kind of my first exposure to like the big leagues. Yeah. So they had they had two different federations um in the US that were both IPF affiliates at the no. same time? No, just to clarify, so the USPF was the IPF affiliate. Okay. But but you had the ADFPA off to the side, which was very well respected. That's the organization that became the USAPL. 
because the ADA, because the American Drug Free Powerlifting Federation even still was around, I think even today though. So it's kind of confusing. Yeah, it is a little bit confusing, but, but so that, that, I guess the, the, the brass and most of the lifters that were the ADFPA kind of morphed, if you will, like, like brother Bennett and, and Robert Crawford and some of the people who were the founding fathers of the USAPL were involved in ADFPA and they kind of then created USA powerlifting. Gotcha. My, so then that fed continued on as American yes. Dusty Powerlifting Federation, USAPL morphed from the EC nucleus yes. members Yes. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Now yeah, and, and, and the reason, my understanding is, the reason that they adopted the name USA Powerlifting is just simply to kind of align themselves with, you know, USA Track and Field, USA Weightlifting, USA Volleyball, et cetera, just to kind of, you know, be on that same moniker, if you will, you know, to kind of streamline their, their name so they, they would be recognizable. And so they took over as the IPF affiliate, the USPF got nixed out, um, and yeah, and so then the USAPL took over right around that 97, 98 time and started doing out of meat testing and in meat testing and all these different things. Yeah. And one more thing before we get back up to Arian, sure. 95 range ish is when Mark Henry and yes, that Mark Henry oh, yeah. from WWE <laughs> sexual yeah. chocolate, I think it was who also two time Olympian was with the American Drug Free Powerlifting Federation. He was like Ray Williams before Ray Williams, doing things no one had ever seen. He had a deadlift, a drug-tested deadlift record that lasts like 25 years or something crazy. Mm -hmm. Just a freak human. I don't got to tell you, two-time Olympian while having the biggest raw total in powerlifting, while also winning the inaugural Arnold Classic Strongman, defeating the reigning world's strongest man. I think it was Sven Carlson at the time. Like Mark Henry was... Yeah. Super duper special. Like very rare. Do you have the strongest powerlifter in the world, the biggest total in powerlifting, also an Olympic weightlifter who's going to the Olympics, wins the Pan Ams, wins American Nationals, also wins strongman Arnold Classic, um, it, which is like all the big guns, including the, the reigning world strongest man. He defeats him in strongman. And then so people see him in freaking pro wrestling WWE and they're like, he really is the strongest man in the world. Like not anymore, but for sure he had a claim. He had a legitimate yeah. claim. Yeah. Yeah. This was also around the same time. If you've heard of James Hollywood Henderson. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right around the same time. So he was competing. And I want to say it was 96 nationals, USPF senior nationals in Philly. He came up there and of course he did a token squats and token deadlifts, but he, cause he wanted to break the bench record in the, in a powerlifting meet, but he, he benched uh, all the other people were wearing, uh, you know, bench shirts. This was equipped. And he walked out, no wrist wraps. He had he had on a fancy gold watch in a Hanes beefy tee t-shirt under his singlet and bench pressed, I don't know, I think it was like 722 or something in a t-shirt. Insane. Insane. He he took, I think he had two attempts that were over 700 because his opener was probably just under 700, if I recall correctly. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's like the heaviest raw, raw press I've ever seen, over 700 pounds raw. Wait a minute, was Larry Milley there? I think Larry was on our podcast and talked about this. Yeah, he was probably there as well. I would imagine. Um, I didn't know Larry at that time. I would meet him a few years later, but yeah, but I, I, I yeah, it, it stands to reason that he was there because he's, as long as I've been in the game, Larry's been in the game a lot longer than I have. And then of course he would, he would become my mentor, but yeah, he was probably there. Tell me if this is true. I don't know if it is. Did I swear, did um, Henderson, lift his leg up and put it on his foot on his other leg like cross his leg like he's chilling 
Are you, well, I, this I do know. In between attempts, Hollywood Henderson was sitting out in the audience. He was such a showman. Yes. And he was sitting in the audience talking with people and so forth. And like one to two lifters out, they would call his name and he would come up out of the audience and kind of walk down almost like like red carpet style. Okay, you know what? That's what it is. Larry yeah. said that. And yeah. then I'm the one who said, oh, come on. Next, you're going to tell me he lifted his <laughs> leg and put it over like he's crossing his leg. Then yeah. it was me who threw that in there. Myself. But I remember hearing this story. Um, yeah. And yeah, like some of these stories are legendary. Yeah, he had his, like, yeah, and he had his, like I said, he had on a fancy like gold wristwatch that he benched with too. He never took that off. He, he didn't wear any wrist wraps. So there was nothing to really get ready. I mean, other than probably chalk his hands and just lay down and bench. But you're talking about just a massive towering figure, you know, bench pressing 700 pounds plus um, raw in a, in a, in a Hanes t-shirt. Was he a pro wrestler as well? I think he did do some pro wrestling. If I'm it not sound, Like Hollywood Henderson sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Like it. <laughs> it sounds yeah, like he uh, is yeah <laughs> so yeah there, there were there were some characters back there man that were just larger than life i mean i've you know i've had the good fortune of seeing you know obviously eddie cohen compete probably three or four times I actually helped him with his bench shirt at the mountaineer cup in west virginia in like 2002 which if you go back you can find that that was broadcast on espn so like you can find some of these old meets um, where they show the highlights and stuff where that was broadcast on ESPN. So yeah, I was, I was at those meets too, kind of watching those guys and Kirk Harwaski and just, I mean, larger than life. And, you know, Ricks was competing back then, Tony Harris. I mean, it was just unbelievable. The, the quality of lifters back then. Superman. I'll let you yeah. take it back. Every yeah, I derailed this a minute, but I had to jump. No, no, it's good. It's good hearing yeah. about the history. Um, the last yeah. part I just wanted to ask about is like, Kind of like how you started figuring out that you like you like the coaching side more and started transitioning into doing that. Yeah, I kind of I kind of mentioned this in 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 my ebook. Um, you know, I, I was invited to um, go with Susie to the 2003 IPF that was the uh, World Championships in Chicago, and those were equipped, of course. And so um, she and I were training partners at the time and I was kind of helping her get ready. And she kind of sprung it on me. She's like, hey, you know, would you be interested in coming to the world championships? And I said, yeah, like, of course, I would love to come. Like, you know, it would be that would be fantastic. I was like, I've never been to a world championships of any kind. Like, heck, yeah, you don't need to twist my arm. So I said, yeah, like, let me know. And I said, I'd love to watch. And she goes, no, no, you're not going to watch. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I want you to be my coach. And I was like, what? I was like, are you are you kidding me? She's like, no, nah, I want you to be my 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 handler. I want you to be my game day coach in the back. I was like, well, well, sure. So so I went with her and completely, obviously, this is my first world championships that I've ever attended, let alone coach at one. So it's like, you know what I mean? So it's like I'm in the warm-up area and I'm completely out of my element. I mean, I've coached at local meets, I've coached at smaller meets, I've coached at nationals, et cetera. But I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So you naturally I just deferred to to Larry Maley, who was the the head coach at that time. And I said, look, man, just put me to work. I'll pull up straps. I'll chalk backs. I'll help roll knee wraps. I'll wrap knees. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Just let me be your like sweat labor, you know, your grunt. And so uh, he put me to work and I just learned under him. And um, yeah, I was able to kind of help throw my hand in the pile and help. And Susie won uh, the world championships as a 52 kilo lifter that year. Um, and so that was, you know, literally and figuratively the most instrumental jumping off point for my powerlifting career 
uh, and, and my life career, if you will, both personally and professionally, because per personally, you know, uh, it, 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 it started the, the spark that created the relationship between Susie and I. And so after that, we began dating and so forth and have been virtually inseparable ever since. And then, of course, it was a, it was a starting point for me because Larry saw how hard I worked. And so after that, every single time that Susie would qualify for a national team, Larry would just extend the offer and say, hey, do you want to be an assistant coach? Do you want to work with me again? And I was like, heck, yeah. I was like, shoot, yeah, 100%. So like almost every year after that, Susie got hurt in 2004, so I didn't go on that team. But every other year, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, I mean, all those years, I was literally in Larry's hip pocket because Susie would qualify for the team and then I would travel to Worlds and I would be like his right-hand man helping him. So that's what created, you know, that's what exposed me to this whole world of game day coaching at the highest levels. And that's where I learned about strategy and I learned about, you know, and of course, as I said, that was all equipped back then, but still, you know, there's a lot of crossover and there's tenants of both that you can, you know, um, that you can learn and, and information that you can glean from, from, from both formats of lifting. And so that's where I essentially cut my teeth was on those national teams with Larry. Cool. Let's get right into the uh, ebook. Like Ryan said, like he always talked yeah. about how you write, wrote the book on uh, on game day handling. Well, now you officially have written the book on game day handling. <laughs> it was yeah. It's funny because I actually I was thinking about that, and it's like Ryan has always said that. Like this is the guy that wrote the book, and I was like, yeah, kind of in a figurative sense. I mean, it's like I have a lot of experience, and I I think he was. And look, I appreciate everything that that Ryan has said, the affirmation, but um, it was like. I wrote the USAPL coaching curriculum, which obviously contains some of this information. So I think that's kind of what he was getting at. But I guess it now is, I yeah. can I can live up I can live up to to Ryan's claim. I can <laughs> I can I can make it so that Ryan's no longer a liar. That's so, right. So it's yeah, about so, time. It's yeah. about time. <laughs> exactly. So you might have I mean, a few books to write if that's the case. If you're yeah. trying to clear my name. It's <laughs> but, that's right. So no. So I'm I'm very blessed, man. I mean this. Um, you know, there was scarcity in the marketplace. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of texts and a lot of manuals um, out there and a ton of information on periodization theory and programming and the nutritional science and exercise science and biomechanics and all of that as it applies to powerlifting. But there's never been a formal text, a guide, a how-to manual, if you will, um, that's been in the marketplace for this. You know, Abby Silverberg, the, you know, my friend and colleague, of course, you know, he created an online like webinar series um, through his, his through his uh, powerlifting technique website in 2020. And I was part of that, but that was online and kind of like a webinar and videos and tutorials that way. But never has there been this definitive text, if you will. So, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about for quite some time. I think I think when I was writing the powerlifting coaching curriculum and, and there were some other contributors to that, like Mike Zordos and Joe Warpea and some other people who obviously helped me quite a bit. I didn't write it all on my own. But when I was writing that back in like 2012 and 2013, I think I always kind of had in the back of my mind, you know, how cool would it be to have a manual on 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 just the game day aspect of things? And so I always kind of had it in my mind that, that it was something that I'd wanted to do and that I'd written a lot of articles and so forth. And I was like, man, if I could take all these articles that I've written on attempt selection and so forth, and if I could, I, you know, kind of sum it all up and tie a ribbon around it and put it into this manual. And so it really, you know, I guess the idea was born back then, but it's within the last three years that it really began to take shape and so forth. And even more specifically, this last year is when I kind of wrote the bulk of it. But it would be one of those things over the last three or four years, man, where I was just accumulating 
I was writing a little bit at a time and writing stuff down. And I'd even be, you know, I do a lot of walking and outside um, listening to podcasts and I'd be listening to a podcast and I'd be like, oh, wow, I like how they touched upon that. And I'm like, that would immediately spark an idea from my, my manual. So I'd be like walking and I'd like shut the podcast off and start dictating into my phone. I'm like, I can't forget this. I got to take these notes down. So I like, you know, make notes in my phone. And so literally it's like me compiling like these pages of notes and articles that I've written and just everything and just sitting down and, and forming an outline and like, how in the world can I make this so that it, it's, it makes sense and put it all in a logical order. So I know, I know that you guys have gotten your eyes on the book. I, I really tried to explain it from like literally the genesis of where you would start to like working you wave, you know, through um, scouting a competition and installing a game plan. And then of course, how to make weight properly and, and then how to warm up at a competition and then how to pick attempts and so on and so forth. And so I tried to make the book sequential in that way, just to have a, a logical flow to it. So um, with case studies as well, like with like examples and case studies of which helps. Um, otherwise, yeah. it can, it, you know, like you knew this could get dry. Let me tell you examples of battles where this happened and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Lot numbers. So, Some people still don't know what lot numbers mean. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, you know, it's funny because it's like, um, you know, you can teach in a lot of different ways, but but writing is like one of my favorite ways to teach because you just have to be more intentional with your words because your words are now that they're in print. And it's almost as if once you put them out there, it's kind of like, holy man, these are etched in stone now, like they're out there. So it's like, you, you can't take them back. And it's my job to explain to the audience, to the reader um, by providing proper context. And then of course, an explanation. So I think like, when I'm writing, I can really get my point across in detail. And it's really nice also to have something in print because then people can can refer back to it. And so, mm. um, you know, I, I kind of, if you notice, I hope you guys like at the beginning of the book, you read the disclaimer that I put out there. So I had two disclaimers at the front end of the book. And it's funny because I really deliberated about this for quite some time. I thought to myself, when I'm writing this book, should I use real examples, like in my case study, should I use real competitions that happened? Or, you know, um, you know, because you want to highlight good, good attempt selection strategy, you also want to highlight, you know, perceived errors or mistakes that could have been made or where, where somebody could have dropped the ball by the same token, you, you don't want to throw somebody under the bus. So it's like, do I want to use these real examples? Or another option was, do I want to take these examples and change all the names and turn them into like fictitious characters? But then it's kind of like, that's kind of clunky and kind of weird because it's like people are reading it, you know, you name like a lifter, some weird name or something, and it just doesn't make sense. And then the other thing was, is my third option was, is should I just create my own scenarios with fake characters and fake names all, all you know, all together? And after really grappling with that, you know, I asked Mike Tushier, who wrote the foreword for my book. I asked Jason Tremblay. And of course, I asked my wife and I asked a few other people, some trusted colleagues and peers. And they all unanimously said, use the real examples. You've got to create verifiability. You know, somebody can go back to a score sheet and they can look at it and they can say, that's the game he was talking about. That's the competition. Mm. So that verifiability gives me credibility because it really did happen. You know what I'm saying? Um, it actually happened. 
without me changing the characters, without changing the names. And then that that credibility makes it relatable because people can go back and, and they can either say, yeah, I remember that competition. I remember that's how it unfolded, but I didn't realize that that happened or that's why it happened or so forth. And if, and if people didn't actually see the competition, now they might go back and study that score sheet. Or some people might say, you know what? Even if they weren't at that competition or they didn't hear about it or they didn't know about it, they might say, I've been in a scenario just like that. And that's cool because now I can use that information in my own coaching strategy you know, and formulating my own plans and stuff. So that's why I kind of went with that. And I mentioned in that disclaimer, I said, look, I said, I'm using these real examples for those reasons because they're verifiable. They lend credibility to my argument argument, and they create relatedness with my audience. Um, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but that's why I use those things. And also, you know, it's funny as, a, as not only a powerlifting coach, but just, you know, being in strength and conditioning, I used to coach um, a guy who was trying to qualify for the U S open in golf. And you know, how, like, I don't know if you've ever talked to a golfer, but after they, they, they play a round of golf, you know, the average golfer, depending upon their ability is going to shoot somewhere between, you know, the pros in the sixties, 65 and 80 some shots per round. They will be able to tell you every single detail about every single shot. So it's kind of like a lifter. If you ask a lifter, there's a context and a story to all nine attempts and they can tell you every detail. Well, this is how the last warmup went. And that's, that's how the opener felt. So because the opener felt this way, we went to the second attempt and what people may not have seen on the live stream was that my foot shifted or my foot slipped on the bench press or something. So that's why we made this call. So I understand I'm gleaning what I can glean from a score sheet, and from maybe a live stream, if I wasn't there in person, and if I don't know the the characters in the play, so to speak. So when I'm reading the, that information from a score sheet, I don't have the context that is behind every single lift. Kind of like that golfer explaining to me the context of every single shot, the chip out of the rough versus the time that he knocked it off the tee versus the time that he two putted on the green. It's like, it's the same thing. Lifters have context for everything. And, and I'm not privy to all of that. So I'm gleaning what I can glean from a score sheet and from a live stream. And then I'm just saying, look, this is how it unfolded. And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but this is how I would have responded had I been in that situation. So that's that's why I chose to re- use these real examples. And to your point, Ryan, I included 11 different case studies in the manual to try to elaborate on different types of coasting strategy. And while you can't cover every single imaginable strategy, I think I covered the main ones. The reason why, and I just want to throw this out here, the, this book is needed, needed, is to this day, I still have athletes on the podcast who don't understand handling to the point of if they are going to battle another person and it's neck and neck between them and the other person, they will have the same handler as the other person, not realizing your handler is eventually going to have to choose who's going to win. Like it can totally come down to this. Isn't we're going to the gym and it's a max test day. And whenever I hear this, I'm looking at the lifter. Like you don't think there's going to be a conflict of interest. Like to this day, people don't understand. I have people come on and be like, I think handling's overblown. 
Um, you remember Gavin Aiden was on the podcast one time. I was like, yeah. hey, nothing's overblown. Look, you just go in there, you do the heaviest you can, stronger person wins. And then my yeah. man, last PA Nats, had rode with you in the van to to, yeah. PA, to dinner. We all went to dinner and then sat beside you in dinner. And I think he got probably the first copy of the book, to be honest, the way you were talking to him. <laughs> okay. You, he got the audible. Of, of your, he got the audible version of your book. He should have been recording. And then yeah. after the dinner, he's like, Fuck me. He was, he was like, he was like, I, I, I was totally ignorant to that side of powerlifting. But, um, but I still to this day have powerlifters come on and I'll be like, um, and they don't know. They, they literally don't know. And I'm like, you, you realize like you can't, it'll be at some certain point, somebody's, it'll be a conflict of interest if I'm this person versus that person. If I know what both your temps are going to be, it right. isn't just going to be, I think you have two and a half more kilos. It's going to be, that's why a placeholder deadlifts two changes at the end for the last, or like you could change your openers, obviously. I, I, we, we'll get into more strategy with you and Ari, and I don't want to go too deep because you you ha, you yeah. do very well in your book to pick apart why you change your deadlift opener when you used you know, to throw people off or whatever the hell. And you could change your last deadlift twice over and have place overloaders in the whole nine. Um, but when you get into that kind of thing, it, at whatever level, maybe at the lower level, you don't give a shit, but we have elite level people coming on the podcast being like, oh yeah, no, I'll just have the same guy. Same woman, uh, uh, both of us, and you're going, you're going head to head. Yeah, 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 we're going head to head with this. My, my, the person I'm going head to head with, we'll have the same person handling us. You, you're not. No, no. What's, what's the issue? You don't. You then you must not know anything about handling. This is crazy. I thought we're still having this conversation. Yeah, you, you, you can't play chess against yourself, and so, so that's really what it comes down to. And I think, and this is not, you know, this is not an indictment of anybody's integrity or any of that kind of stuff. We're not throwing shade on anybody. I think truth be told, you could probably be objective for the first eight attempts, right? You could probably say, you know, like if I'm coaching both Ryan and Arian and you guys are battling head to head. You're you know going to favor me. Come on. <laughs> Come on like, like, like I can honestly say, Ryan, I think you have this much on the squat and we should put that on the bar and the area. And I think you've got this much and so on and so forth. But then once you get into the deadlifts, you know, once the bar, you know, hits the floor, man, that's, that's where the meat is determined. That's what determines the placings. And it's like, it, you're human. It is the human condition to gravitate toward one. You know what I mean? If I ask you what your two favorite foods are, there can only be one favorite. You, you <laughs> pizza know, you and pizza. Say, yeah, pizza. right. You, you know what I'm saying? You, you might say it's steak and pizza, but if I hold a gun to your head, you're going to pick one. And it's the same thing with game day coaching. If you have two lifters, you you can probably be objective for those first eight attempts. But once you get to that ninth one, man, then, then if, if you say to me, I can still be objective, then I would say to you, you're not coaching. Because at that point, you're just saying, you know, you're not playing strategy. You're no longer playing the game. You know what I mean? You're not giving your lifter the opportunity to, to win, to go for it, et cetera. So that's why you just, in my opinion, you can't play chess against yourself. So- you know, in national team situations, that's why we've always, you know, split the split the split the lifters up. We put one coach with one and one coach with the other, and that way there's no conflict of interest. Nobody gets their feelings hurt, and each one has an advocate because it's imperative that on game day that each lifter have an has an advocate. You know, it's almost like I'm your defense attorney. 
You know what I mean? I'm I'm going to bat for you because I need to make sure that the rules are enforced. I need to make sure that everything is called above board on the platform, that the bar loads are correct, that the, there's no spot or interference, that, you're, that I'm giving my lifter every single opportunity to maximize his or her game day performance. And, and there's a conflict of interest if you're doing that for two people who are battling head to head. If you have lifters of different strength levels, you know, that aren't really competing against one another. And that's completely different. You know, you can be objective coaching those two people, but if you have two people of relative same strengths, you need to separate them in my opinion. I've seen you take a lifter and they defeat someone else who is stronger than them. I, I had Ashton on the podcast and I was like, Bryce, you were stronger than Bryce Lewis the day that, that um, he beat you yeah. at Nats. Um, that, yep. you, that was handling. Yeah, Matt, Matt, Matt can do that sometimes if it's close enough. And um, that is straight up anyone who doesn't think that this is not going to the gym and just maxing out. This right. is, this is handling makes a difference. And if you don't have someone handling for you like that, if you're just within five, 10 kilos of the other person and they're not going to do that for you, Fuck, you're you should get someone who's gonna do that for you. <laughs> get Arian, get get Matt, get Rory, get whatever, get somebody who this is what they do. Yeah, it's you know, it it's it's truly a game and it's truly a sport because you only have three opportunities. You have three bullets in your gun per discipline to fire them on target, and they need to land on target every single time. And so you can't afford to miss lifts, and so it's it's you know, it's about building a total. And so you're not, like you said, this isn't a max out day. This isn't a test day. You know, you're not given infinite amount of chances. If we were going to find out who the strongest person was, matter of factly, just the strongest, we'd go into a laboratory, right? And we'd have high speed film analysis. We'd use bar speed, you know, we uh, to, to track bar speed in meters per second. We use some type of force platform. And we'd say, okay, you guys are going to squat until you until you miss. And even if you miss one, Maybe you misgrooved it. We'll let you go again. And 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 if you want to go up just a kilo at a time, you can go up a kilo at a time. And we're just going to go until everybody just taps out and give you unlimited attempts. That's how you would find out who's the strongest squatter and who's the strongest bencher and deadlifter. And then you could add those together and you know kind of make a summary out of it and say, well, this person is matter of factly the strongest. But powerlifting doesn't determine doesn't determine who's the strongest. It determines who's the best powerlifter because there's only three attempts per discipline. And you only get three shots on goal or three shots on target. And so you need to pick the number that's as close to the limit without going over, you know, so that you don't, you know, like we use that, the, the filling the bucket analogy all the time. You and I both use that analogy. We're trying to fill the glass or fill the bucket with water. We're trying to get it as close as we can to the tippy, tippy top so we can maximize the volume in that bucket. But if we overshoot, we splash and we spill. And then we're left with a much lower water volume. So it's the same thing. It's naming the number as close to the person's limit without actually going over because then they're stuck with their second attempt. So yeah, it measures who's the best power lifter, not who's, not who's the strongest. I mean, strength is the greatest asset, of course. The, the person who's matter-of-factly the strongest person in the room is always going to have de facto the advantage, but it becomes a game, you know? And I try to, I try to explain it in the book also that it's, Imagine if you can if you can frame it in your mind that you're scoring points versus just lifting weight. And it's like, oh, okay, kilos are points. Well, I just want to score as many points as I can and maximize my point score versus saying it's just, you know, and sometimes if you just kind of 
reframe it, cognitive reframing in your mind and frame it that way, then you can think, oh, okay, this is a point scoring opportunity for me. And so if I make three attempts and my competitor only makes two, I have the opportunity to score more points. I'll let I'll yeah. let Arian dive in because there's more details to this. There's tons, but yeah, yeah, good talks about what I was gonna say. Even aside from the whole like one coach handling two or three lifters, we've seen it just at nationals last year where a lifter comes without a coach to a national championship too. So that's like a whole <laughs> different thing. Like it's kind of like you said, you not not even having a lawyer. You're going to court. Like nah, I'll just do it myself. <laughs> I'll figure it out. And so you know, even at this higher level, at world sometimes you know with the depending on the country, they may not be able to bring someone or something like that. Right. But yeah going to like a, a national championship and be like, ah, now I don't need to hire a handler or anything. I'll just do it myself. It is like still crazy to me that it happens these days. Yeah. There's no way that I would ever imagine competing. I mean, ever again, without, without a game day coach It's just, just not even a thought that we just wouldn't even consider it. And especially Starian's point at a nationals, you know, particularly, you know, in, in, in America with USAPL and stuff, you know, you've got four or five platforms running concurrently it's just, it, it's madness. It's, it's chaos in the warm-up room, you know, trying to figure out what the timing and so forth. And so there's so, you know, aside from all the attempt selection, there's so much nuance that people don't see behind the scenes in, certain, in, in terms of the timing, just timing the warm-ups. You know what I mean? If someone dumps a bar on a platform, that could affect your timing of when you're going to take your warm-up, you know, your squat warm-up, particularly if it's equipped like, he, I mean, Arian knows because he's worked with equipped lifters too. It's like it changes the trajectory of your whole day, you know, and you have to just be adaptable and be able to, to, to amend your plan on the fly. And so it's, yeah, attempt selection and strategy is a huge, huge, major component. Um, but you've got you've to understand all the soft skills and all the stuff that goes into it behind the scenes as well. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention for people who haven't been following your posts and stuff that they may not know how much stuff is in this book. It's more than even I thought that would be like, you know, some people might think like, oh, you know, it's few, few chapters on attempt selection and warming up, but you go into like the first few chapters are philosophy and psychology, things that I weren't, I wasn't expecting in there. You go into national teams, scouting, um, the actual stats as far as people making and missing attempts, um, making weight for the competitions. Obviously that affects the actual competition. So all kinds of stuff here. I've made it to chapter 14, which is about to be on equip lifting, but yeah, oh, there's cool. 20 chapters, 180 something pages. So um, there's a lot in here for anyone who is um, interested in it, learning all aspects. And one of the things that popped out to me as well, which I want to go over, because I want to hear more of your thoughts is the chapter four on uncoachable lifters, because oh. I feel like maybe, I don't know, you might have a, a tougher experience or maybe initially you did um, coaching people was because like, it's a little bit easier. I feel like when I'm programming for the lifter, then they're going to be more likely to like, listen to my game plan than me. Like, Hey, I followed um, your training all along. I developed everything for you. I know what you're capable of versus you handle a lot of people at national world championships that you don't program for. And they have to trust that, you know, what numbers they can hit. So I just want to hear some of your thoughts in general on uncoachable lifters and the characteristics you talk about and those kind of things. Yeah, so I think I think first of all, let me say this: when someone hires me for game day coaching um, at a at a nationals or even a local meet or something like that, and I'm not, you know, um, writing the programming and 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 uh, putting the recipe together, if you will, then clearly I need to open up those lines of communication with both the lifter and their coach if they have one, and and so communication is at the absolute bedrock of all of this. I have to be communicative and communicated with um, by the lifter and their coach. And so I would immediately want to get on board, so to speak, 
and start finding out about their training, start start looking at their videos and, and unpacking their training and getting my eyes on that. So I have an idea of what they look like under load, of what their past performances are like, what their tendencies are in terms of their progression. Um, some lifters are pretty idiosyncratic in their attempt selection strategies and the way that they um, warm up and so forth. And I want to know all of that. So I actually have, I have a pretty detailed questionnaire that I send out to prospective lifters when they hire me for game day coaching. And it's about 20 questions and it gets into a lot of that sort of thing. And, um, and, and so the people that hire me for any kind of meet are enlisting my services and I become a paid employee of theirs, but they, they want to work with me. They have sought me out for whatever reason. So whether it's a local lifter at a local meet or whether it's a, a Bryce Lewis or a Mike Tushier or a Sam Calhoun or a Ray Williams or Dennis Cornelius or Terrell Atwood or any of these people who have hired me in the past to coach them, they they matter of factly want to work with me and they want my they value my expertise, they value my experience and my coaching acumen. So those people are seeking me out. Those people are very easy to work with and very coachable um, because again, they have hired me and want to pay me for my time and my expertise. So again, you know, I start those lines of communication and then and then leading up to the meet as I'm watching their training, we have a game in, uh, planning installation phone call, always a video call where we go through their heaviest lifts and training. We look at their goals, their objectives for the meet. We factor in their body weight. We factor in all these game day scenarios, like what are you trying to accomplish at the meet, so on and so forth. Um, what numbers are you expecting to hit? Okay, well, here's the game plan that I think we should install based on the competition, based on who we're competing against, based on what you want to do. If you're just trying to hit a qualifying total to get to raw nationals, that's going to look very different than if you're in the primetime session at USAPL nationals and you're trying to win, or if you're trying to win the pro series, or if you're going to worlds and you're, you're trying to medal or hit the podium, all those scenarios look very different. So it is really, really rare that I run into an uncoachable lifter in those situations, right? You almost never get somebody that has actually hired you, that is paying you for your services, who is uncoachable because they want you. They found me for a reason. Most of the uncoachable lifters, and they are few, but you do encounter them, are what are in national team situations usually. And so, you know, um, they, they've made a national team. They've been cooking their own recipe. They've working with their own coach. They've been doing things their own way for a long period of time and um, have had success. And a lot of those lifters um, have a diva-like mentality or can have a diva-like mentality and just are, are not coachable from the standpoint of, well, I've been doing it this way for so long and it's been working, so I'm not willing to change. I'm not willing to listen to you. I'm gonna do things my own way. Um, and, and they can be very stubborn and very rigid and very inflexible. And what a lot of these lifters fail to understand is that at least in America, the national team coaches are commissioned by the Federation. They are chosen, they are paid employees of the Federation, they are put into those scenarios on purpose, and they are matter-of-factly responsible for that national team. So yes, those lifters are coming as individuals, but they are representing their country, they are representing their Federation, and many times they have sponsors and so forth that they may be representing. So on the one hand, you know, I've been on both sides of this many, many times with Susie, and so naturally I understand where a lifter comes and they say, look, you know, 
I know my own training. I know my own abilities. My programming coach knows my own abilities. You don't know anything. You're just, you're just an overseer. You're just a, a national team manager. So I've seen it from both sides, but I think, I think the key is, is that the coach has to be the coach and the lifter has to be the lifter at the end of the day. And each person plays a role and they have to understand that if the national team coach is a commissioned employee by the federation and they are matter of factly responsible for that team and they're competing for national team points and so forth, it's their ass on the line if a lot of those lifters don't perform well. You know what I mean? And they could wind up losing their job. I mean, Aaron, you know, because you've been in this situation before as a national team coach. So it's, but having said all of that, there has to be give and take. There's got to be this, this cohesion between the lifter and the coach. And I think it just all starts with, with communication. If you're able to open up the lines of communication and invite those programming coaches into the conversation and say, Hey, yeah, you know what? You're going to play a vital role. I value your opinion because you've seen this lifter's lifts more than I have. You're the one cooking the recipe. So let's bring you into the conversation. Please help me install the game plan. Please tell me what your lifter is capable of. And if you're there on game day, heck yeah, I can name you as a team assistant and you can be there so that your lifter feels at ease. I want your lifter to feel comfortable just with the understanding that, look, it's the national team coach's responsibility to have the final say on the attempts it's their ass on the line and so they're going to kind of get the final say so it's it's a really delicate balance but i've only encountered difficult people on national teams and again as i said they're few and far between for every uncoachable lifter there's five or six people that i absolutely love and adore and so it's you know you 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 just kind of you, you take the good with the bad yeah yeah i've definitely experienced some of those especially with the sub junior and junior team like with the op with our open team, a lot of them were more experienced. They've been to a number of worlds. They have a, a coach who's maybe more experienced. They're adults, so I can be a little bit more lenient with them and trust them. With the sub junior and junior, it's like their first nationals and then their first worlds, and their parents coaching them, and their parent thinks they're the best ever, and they're just like getting in your fist and yelling at you. We, we want to do this and that. So yeah, it's definitely a little bit more interesting with the sub junior and juniors. But I try and like you know be harder on them because they're kids and they don't know what they're doing and you kind of have to nudge them in the right direction and make sure they have a successful world yeah i mean the, you, you have to put some guardrails up right and you have to establish some boundaries and all of that i mean you know as a national having been a national team coach i mean your job literally begins when nationals ends right the second that the national championships ends if you're there you're probably introducing yourself to some of the lifters and saying hey i'm the national team head coach are you interested in being on the team and pending the drug test results and all these different things? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, if you start that communication early, it helps to kind of, for lack of a better term, lubricate the machinery, if you will, so that things move more fluidly. But to your point, particularly with some of the younger lifters, you'll get a parent that thinks that they know more than you and they can be very belligerent. And I've been in situations where we've had, younger lifters who may have been a junior make an open team or something. And you'll get a parent who's overbearing and you just have to tell them the best way you can support us is from the stands. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I appreciate your enthusiasm, but right now, you know, the best way you can help us is by cheering like a rock star from the front row, 
because we got we got work to be done and we got to execute a plan back here. And frank, frankly, they're getting in the way or they're kind of overstepping their boundaries. So, I mean, you've had to deal with that much more than I have just because I know you've done the juniors and subs. And, you know, most of my experience has been with opens, but I've had to work with some juniors and subs too. And it can get, you know, it's a delicate balance all the way around. So. Yeah. I remember sometimes working with some of the parents and like, I know pounds and to kilo conversion like fairly well, especially for the numbers I know. But sometimes like these parents would be throwing out only pounds because they don't know kilos. And it'd be like, oh, I want to take 738 pounds next attempt. And you're going to have 60 seconds on the clock. You're trying to figure out what attempt to do. And you're talking to the lifter and the parents telling you something in pounds. You're trying to convert and stuff like that. And it's like they're not they're not prepared with like kilos and knowing legal attempts and records and everything like that. And sometimes I have to tell them like, listen. I'm just going to go based on what it looks like and what I think is capable of and what I discussed with the athlete, how they're feeling, everything like that. And yeah, you can, you can give your, your information, whatever feedback you think, but we have to make a decision in 60 seconds. We can't be going back and forth like this. Yeah. And you're like I said, and you're the one who's been commissioned. You're ultimately responsible for that lifter. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's, it's your ass on the line. You know what I mean? And if, and if your team and your lifters start having a, a rash of bad performances, it's going to be the, you know, that, that federation's executive that's looking down at you. And, and it's like, what's this, you know, shit show that Arian was in charge of, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, we need to get a new coach in here. We have all these missed attempts, these missed opportunities with using chips, you know, we didn't leverage lot number to our advantage, et cetera, et cetera, because you've got these overbearing parents and it's your butt that's on the line. So, yeah, I mean, but, but again, by and large, on the whole, like I said, for every uncoachable lifter, there's there's a multitude of people that you just adore and love working with, you know, and 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 they're just honored to represent their federation, represent themselves, and represent their country. So it's they're few and far between, but you just have to kind of beware of them and you know um, deal with them as best you can. Yeah, Ryan, anything you want to add in there? You want to go next topic? You can go ahead, buddy. Yeah, let's get more into the to the nitty gritty. And man, if you want to go over some of like the data that you've collected on attempt selection and misses, just I think people are always interested to know like how many people bomb out, how many people miss their openers, how many people miss their thirds, those kind of things. Yeah, so so I have compiled quite a bit of data. Um, I started looking at data um, probably you know when I became a national team head coach. So that was right around the time of two thousand eight. So between two thousand eight and ten ish is when I started looking at the data, you know, I was kind of mentored by, by Larry in these national team situations. And I understood the progressions and the natural attempts that lifters would make of various strength levels. But I was like, I want to kind of comb through the data and see if I can find more specifics on the numbers. You know what I mean? If I start examining this data, you know, you always start with more questions than there are, you know, um, than, than you have answers for, but you, you, you start digging and, and seeing if you can unpack and uncover trends and so forth. So I wound up looking at data and I, I tried to go back as far as I could, but really 2000 was right around the time that I could start finding reliable sources of data and, um, um, and full meat results. Cause sometimes you, you'd go back further and you don't see the full meat results. You just saw the heaviest lifts. So um, to date and in the manual, I examined 112 competitions. So I looked at 112 competitions dating from 2000 all the way through 2022. You know, I just published the book. So I wanted it to be as current as possible. So I literally threw in as much data as I could all the way up until the end, up until my published date. So I included all the big meets last year too in my data set. And so I examined over 17,000 
individual performances oh in these God. hundred, uh, yeah, in these hundred and twelve different competitions. And so, um, one of the things that kind of rings true is you you want to you want to learn, you know, what are the best in the world doing? Like the absolute best. Like what are the world champions doing, both equipped and raw? And when you look on average, you know, you only get nine attempts is that the world champions, the IPF world champions um, that are sitting at the top of the podium every year with a gold medal around the neck are making about seven and a half attempts out of nine It's 7.4 is actually what it is. So they're making, you know, they're making at least one third attempt in each discipline um, each time that they go out. And, that, and that's to say, look, there are world champions who are going nine for nine and going eight for nine, but the average through all the weight classes is seven and a half. So I also wanted to find out how many people bomb. And um, what I discovered was about six and a half percent of all powerlifters bomb at a competition. And that's about 10% of them coming from equipped and only about almost 4% coming from raw. So, um, and as you would quite imagine, the majority of bomb outs are coming in the squat. And so I also did comparisons of raw versus equipped, you know, and, and, and where we see more bomb outs. So obviously with equipped lifting, you're seeing a larger percentage of equipped lifters bombing out in the squat. And presumably that's because they can't achieve proper depth and so forth. And then in the bench press also, you'll see more equipped lifters bomb out in the bench. And whether that's a reflection of them not being able to touch their chest or whether it's a reflection of, of their gear, you know, precluding them from from locking out a heavy weight on the opener, whatever that reason might be, or the openers are glitchy, um, you see more bomb outs and equip lifting in both the bench and the and the squat. And then interestingly, you see more raw lifters actually bombing out in the deadlift. Um, it's almost a two to one. So, so that's where the raw lifters come in and they actually bomb out more than the equip lifters is in the equip lifting. Um, and then some more data that I really wanted to uncover and unpack. And I know that I've discuss this with you, Arian, you know, through the coaching certifications that you've taken is um, not only the percentage of, 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 of missed openers. I mean, clearly the opener is, you know, is, is a critical, you know, um, momentum building attempt because you want to get into the meat. So we, we find that um, about 15% of all lifters miss their squat opener and about 10% miss their bench opener and about 5% miss their deadlift opener. But what's really interesting is that of the people who miss an opener, about two thirds of those people go on to miss an additional attempt. So it's like, if you start out the meet, yeah, it's crazy, right? So if you miss an opening attempt, two thirds of those people are gonna go miss another one. And 20% of those people are gonna go on to bomb out. So it's like, you, holy shit. Yeah, it's cliche, man, but you have got to make the opening attempt because momentum is gonna grow, it's gonna build. And it's going to build negatively or it's going to build positively. And so if you miss the opener, there's a really high probability you're going to miss another one. And so it's just absolutely critical to just get on the board. And that doesn't mean that you're opening with something, you know, that's a five RPE or that you're opening something that you could do for a set of eight. That's not what I'm saying. You know, typically, and again, this is something that I gleaned from my data examination. Most people are opening at about 90 to 92%-ish, roughly, give or take, of, of their max, of their endpoint, of their PB, right? And kind of the sweet spot for us, or the number that we use, is about 91%. And so that seems to be, for most people, a number that they could triple. You know, that's, that's something you could hit for a set of three to competition standard. And for really elite lifters, if you can't triple it, it's a surefire double. 
I mean, it's a lock of a double. Like it's, you know, but but to err on the safe side, it's 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 about what you can do probably for three reps. So 90% ish is a really good jumping off point because again, like I said, if you miss the opener, there's a good chance you're gonna miss your <laughs> miss another one. So um, and then kind of the last or, or one of the other data points that I threw in is like all of us, all lifters build their total through their third attempts. You know, presumably that's going to be the heaviest attempt. So I wanted to find out what percentage of people are missing their third attempts. And so I included this in the book as well. It's it's about 43 and a half percent miss their third squat. And then literally almost half, 49 and 50 percent miss their third bench and their third deadlift. Damn it, man. This is yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 24 percent of every lifter, so a quarter, miss their third squat and their third deadlift. So there's a correlation between missing a third squat, presumably fatiguing your lower back, obviously, getting out of position for whatever reason, straining too hard, that is going to come and it's going to bite you in the deadlift. You know what I mean? So 24. So if you just make, look, man, if you just make your third attempts, if you just make your thirds, even if they're lighter than what you would anticipate it, you're better off than half the field. You're better off than half of the competitors already by just making your third attempt. And then if you make both your third squat and your third deadlift, which for everybody who's not a bench specialist, that's where you're building the bulk of your total is in those two attempts. If you make both of those, you're doing better than 25% of the field. You're, you know, so um, those are just, you know, some of the key data points that I discussed and some of the key statistics that's all in kind of that, that data chapter that Arian's talking about. And I explain all of it in explicit detail. So. Yeah. I think the, the other thing with the 24% for the third squat and deadlift is like, if you miss your third squat in high level competition, now you're falling behind and then you're trying to play catch up on a delve to make up that ground. And it just <laughs> leads to you missing to take a bigger attempt. So because you went too aggressively, you said you filled your cup too much on squat and spilled over. Now you have to try and make up on, on a deadlift. Um, and so yeah, a lot of times I almost think about it with my lifters, especially when it's not a podium that we're fighting for is as soon as they miss their third squad, in my mind, I'm thinking like, we're adjusting the deadlifts <laughs> down. Like we're not taking the top third attempt deadlift anymore. That's out of the picture for the day because they gassed themselves out in a third squad or maybe just straight up missed or whatever the reason is. So people have to like learn to make that adjustment. Um, yeah. Another problem exactly to your point, Arian, is they think when they miss a third squat, oh, then I have to be more aggressive in my bench and my deadlift. So it's like, then they decide, let's adjust the plan. Let's let's uptick our progressions in the bench and the deadlift. And, and you're, playing, you're playing with fool's gold, man. That's not going to work out well. That's not going to end well. You know, you're rolling the dice too much. You need to stick to your plan. And at that point, you miss a third squat. You just need to focus on, like you said, going eight for eight. Or I mean, I mean, you are eight out of nine, rather. You need to make the remaining six attempts so that you can maximize your total. You don't necessarily change your plan just because you made a third squat. You know what I mean? You're, you're not gonna be able in most scenarios to make up that ground, particularly with the really big and heavier and stronger lifters because there's just yeah, so it's... much, so many kilos of a spread that you're working with there. You're not gonna make it up. Yeah, Alex, I'm not trying to compare to other sports and it's not a, you know, a direct comparison, but like, it'd be like, let's say you're playing NFL and you're, you're down two touchdowns after the first quarter, or if you're like an NHL game after the first period, you're down one or two scores. 
and you just start going Hail Marys and you start pulling your goalie. Like, I have to gain all this ground. It's like, now there's still plenty of time left for you to do your strategy the right way and gain some ground back. And at the end of the game, then you can go bigger if you need to. Well, it's also, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was about to say to the point earlier with the data that 7.4 is the average. Likely your competitor is going to miss as well. Hang on, that was your turn to miss. Likely they're not going nine for nine either. So just hang in the pocket for a minute there. <clears throat> yeah, you know, every single time that you or your lifter makes an attempt, you put pressure on your competitor to make theirs. So consistency is a huge weapon. If you're not a specialist or you're not the best in any one discipline, if you're not the best squatter, the best bencher, the best deadlifter, consistency is such a huge weapon for you, right? You know, look at somebody like, like a Bryce Lewis or a Celine Crum or some of these lifters, they're, they're not the best in any of the disciplines, but they're often the best at the end because they've made the most lifts. They've made eight or nine attempts consistently. So consistency is such a huge weapon. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah. If, if you don't have any, you know, I use the analogy in the book. I, I think you guys may have read that far about ACE cards and having ACE cards up your sleeve. And so you've got advantages when you start the meet. And the very first advantage is just matter of factly having the strongest lifter in the room. If you've got the person who has the highest ceiling, that is matter of factly the, the person who has the advantage. And then you get into other advantages like being the strongest deadlifter. And why is that such an advantage? Well, because it's the last event and you get to, you get to have the final say. You get to pull last. You get to go for the win. You get to put, you know what everybody, you know, you know what everybody else has done. You know what their score is. So you need, if you need, you need, you know, if you need to match their score, if you need to go above. And then of course, lot number is a huge one. That's another ACE card that you can have up your sleeve. So clearly you want to have a higher lot number so that if you're taking the same attempt, you get to go after them, you know? Um, and then, and then after that, it's body weight. Um, body weight is, is an ACE card to have up your sleeve because if you're the lighter lifter, then you can tie you don't have to win. And then other lifters are going to have to try to beat you if they're heavier than you. And then, of course, the last one or the last ace card, I kind of call it the joker card in the book, uh, is, is the ability to set world records. And so when you can play with chips um, and, and go up the 0.5 kilos, the 1.1 pounds on an attempt, that's a huge weapon and you ought to play it. And so, um, you know, to that point, Ryan, I think you've mentioned it. You and Arian both kind of mentioned it on the podcast and I, you know, because you guys were there in South Africa watching the battle of the 76s, right? And your mind was blown when Poland and Agata Shitko didn't didn't use a chip on oh any of the like like I'm sitting there watching the live stream and I'm screaming. I'm going crazy because Take your old, chip. I'm like, what are you doing? Like you're gonna I'm, need it. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, please, on one of these attempts, you have to put a chip on the bar. You know, and, and and to that matter, all three of the attempts you need to use the chip because if I'm not mistaken, she opened with a world record. So you 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 use the you leverage these things to your advantage so that at the end of the day, it's forcing your competitor out of their strike zone. You know what I mean? It's forcing them out of their comfort zone. They're gonna have to do something that they don't necessarily want to do. And I don't care if it's a half kilo or a full kilo or whatever, you know, you, you make just bitter and go out there and take more. To, so. to anyone listening, uh, just in case they're not fully, I, I want to, some people might be very new. So incrementally you have to go up two and a half kilos, 
But if it's a world record or national record and it's at the national championships, you can put 0.5. So then you're essentially, let's say you're doing a 250 kilo lift, you can do 250.5. Now your competitor has to go up another full two kilos, but you only had to go up 0.5 to get that in there. So it's like a... You know, there it's just a little bit more. Say, so like, like, anyways, it can break ties. It can force your competitor to load up more than you know. It's just the different. It shifts things into your favor like that. Um, especially like if you got a deadlift and you could just essentially match what you need and then have that point five on top, as opposed to having to go up a full two and a half. Well, that's that's going to help out huge for you. Um, or if you're trying to build that subtotal on that deadlifter to force them up. So they don't have a chip maybe in deadlift. So to force them up, they got to go up two and a half kilos as opposed to matching like, fuck. All right. Well, I got to go up another increment up because. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, 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 yeah, I talked about that scenario in the book when I explained the, uh, the 93 battle in, in, in Sweden in, in uh, 2021 between Jonathan Keiko and Gustav Hedlund. So, you know, that came down to the last deadlift, if you recall. And of course, John uh, Keiko was able to, uh, to use a chip in the bench press. And so he used a chip, if I'm not mistaken, on both his second and his third attempt, which was great. And of course, you know, in, in typical Jonathan Keiko fashion, he went nine for nine and he forced Gustav because he had that extra chip advantage to go up even higher you know what I mean? And take a higher number, um, you know, to, to, to beat them at the end. So when, when I was watching the worlds in South Africa and I saw Agatha go out for her opening bench and she's opening at 137.5, I was like, my God, why didn't you, you know, just 138, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And then the next number was 145. And yet again, I was screaming. I was like, my God, you got to put a chip on the bar, you know? And so every attempt, um, and, and again, this is one of those situations where I'm just watching a live stream to, you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying to glean what's going on and I don't know the backstory. So I don't know what the Polish coach, what his mindset was or what their thinking was, or, or maybe if they just kind of fell asleep or whatever, I have no idea, but they took 2.5 kilo increments on all three bench attempts. And so just, I think Arian and myself would have leveraged that to our advantage and used the chip. It's just, it's, it's a card that you, in, in my opinion, you have to play. I've seen, I've had people come on the podcast and, and like they're, they're someone's in a battle and they're retelling me what happened and they're talking about a squat world record. And I'm like, there was no chip on that. And it's like, um, you were in a battle. It's like, yeah. I've I've heard, I've had people in the untested come on and I think untested they don't quite have is it the, the depth isn't there in terms of um like there's far more people in the tested than there is untested so when you show up at a competition usually it's against a calculator not kilo for kilo matchups so the the handling you don't have to be put in those scenarios as much right so it can be a bit of a blind spot some of these things so but I've had people come on here it's a money meet it's like you should have threw a chip on there because if there's money in the line of this outcome you need to defeat somebody but um to your point, like at the end, people could tie you and win on body weight. This happened at Canadian nationals several times. We already seen it happened on at the world championships. We saw like the 63 kilo class, the entire podium had the same total. It was body weight. One chip along the way would have been 0.5. Now, every single one of those ladies would have to go up another two kilos to best you. Now they can't tie you on body weight anymore especially if you just happen to be marginally heavier, marginally heavier weight in 
Get, yeah. Imagine being marginally heavier and balking at a chip. You're just opening the door for the scenario I just said. That's why like people who don't know when they hear this podcast and they just, if they don't know, I'm like, if Matt Gary is available, if Arian's available, <laughs> you did three months of prep, fucking pay him whatever money it is so you don't throw it away in one day. And wake yeah. up the next day and have someone who knows powerlifting be like, oh man, you're going to be upset when someone cues you in to be like, do you realize how you gave that away? And they'll be like, ah, it'll be worth the money. Trust me. Or buy Matt's book. <laughs> <laughs> buy Matt's book, please. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the most important day of the cycle, right? It's, it's game day. I mean, that's, it's matter of factly the, it's the proving grounds. It's where the rubber meets the road, man. And it's like, you spend all that money during prep on a programming coach, on a nutritional coach, on all these different things, maybe even a sports psychologist. And then you're just going to throw caution to the wind and just wing it and YOLO or do whatever and leave that stuff up to chance. You you have to hire somebody who knows what they're doing at these meets. You, it's worth yeah, the money. Spend, spend 100. That's <laughs> worth yeah. the money. No, the prep no is doubt. So, it's That's so what I try to explain. So go yeah, ahead. So I try to explain to people online and even to my lifters is like, like Matt said, you can do everything right. As far as the programming, do a 16 week training block. Let's say you're looking at all PRs, like, you know, maybe five and a half kilos on squat and Dell of two and a half on bench. Everything's going great. And you screw up that one day, then you don't get to properly assess how did the programming go and make new training maxes to go using in the future. And you messed up the one day that you prepared for, if it's a big level meet or whatever. Um, and you only get, you know, a few of those per year. And so like, yeah, you can, make or break yourself with just that meat day. And that goes with everything. A lot of the stuff, which is in the book, which is like the making the weight, the warming up properly, the having a game plan, picking the right third attempts to be able to show the strength that you built throughout the training cycle. Yeah. You, you, you want to be able to literally and figuratively reap what you've sown. And so it's just, yeah, you can't leave it up to chance. You have to hire a professional. So, and, that, and that, that's why intentionally, you know, you guys, you guys both commented and you said, and I appreciate the, the, the compliment. You both said that the book came with like a lot more than you thought you were just getting. And, and that was one of the things that I wanted to make this book. I wanted to make it the most comprehensive, you know, the most thorough, the most extensive and detailed book that I could possibly make it. So that's why I talked about every imaginable thing. You know, it's like I try to put myself in the shoes of a lifter and say, what are the things that I would be thinking of on game day? What are the things that are important? And so let's cover all those things. And that's always the situation that I know that Arian puts himself in. You know, when Arian's been hired by a lifter or when I've been hired by a lifter or somebody, you know, it's like you try to put yourself in, in their shoes and you try to imagine, okay, what would be the perfect day of going nine for nine and hitting PBs and all, all disciplines? So I get nine for nine and four PBs. And, and what can the coach do to help facilitate that? You know, that's the question that I kind of ask myself. And then you try to meet the needs of your lifter. And so that's what I tried to do with this book is try to literally just uncover as many stones as I possibly could to put lifters in the best situation to succeed. Yeah. Like, I, I like how you mentioned the book as well, uh, a lot about the rules and mention some of the rules. Like one of the things I always see at nationals and sometimes at worlds is on squat, the lifter will get two red lights with two red cards and the coach will then look around like wondering what's going on and trying to ask the referees, hey, what was the call for? When a red card in squat is literally one thing, it can only be one thing, depth. It's like, okay, you clearly did not read the rules and maybe you're just a programmer, not a meet day handler. So like, that's like one thing that stands out to me immediately. Like people 
look at the red card and they don't even know what the color cards are and they're trying to coach someone at a high level meet. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to struggle back to that you mentioned with, with the Gata, yeah, I'm not sure what happened either. Cause at junior worlds, it looks like they did chip some, they did 138 in the opener, but then 147.5 in the second and then 156 for the third. So they yeah. chipped the first and the third, not the second. And then Europeans, they did 145 opener. So I'm guessing that wasn't the record. And then 152nd on this, 156 on the second and third. So they did chip. So they did start okay. chipping. But okay. the point that I want to make that you mentioned is to, if you can chip on all three, or if you can chip on second and third to chip it. Cause some people are like, oh no, I'll chip it on the third. But how do you know you're going to make the third? Yeah. What if you make, miss the third and you're stuck with your second? So you should chip yeah. the second too. So of for course. example, like with um, Jonathan Garcia Worlds, we chipped the second just to get the minimum half a kilo, get the world record, and then chip the third again as well. In case if we didn't miss the third, you have the second to fall back on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you always want to force your opposition to do something that they don't want to do at the end of the day. And so if somebody doesn't, you know, if they're not a deadlift specialist or they don't have the deadlift world record to play around with or whatever, or the American record or whatever it may be, like Ryan said, they're going to have to go up an extra two and a half kilos to beat you. You know, so why, why not play that card? And to your point, play it on every single opportunity that you get. I would, uh, I just don't see why you wouldn't. If you, if you're a coach and you listen to this, even if you just coach on a local level, you know how much better you're going to feel if you just grab this manual, go over some of these chapters and be like, what is a lot number? How do the lot numbers work? Higher means I go second, uh, you know, yes. If there's both the same weight, like just hash this out and just figure, just just skim through this bad boy. You're going to feel a lot better walking into that. You even have strategy. If you're coaching a, a someone with a big subtotal, if you're coaching strategy, if you're coaching someone with a big deadlift um, and how fake deadlift openers or, or placeholders for your final deadlift to throw off your intentions for your final deadlift, force the hand of the people, um, you know, before you to, to make decisions and then you go and, and how to do these things, um, you know, you give some strategy, be like, look, if if you don't know too much and you're just like, I'm fucking handling somebody and I know he's got a big subtotal, not a big deadlift. Matt covers, here's some basic strategy. You're going to have to personalize it, but here's a couple key general points you're probably going to find out. And here's some rulings you're going to need to know. And, um, and just, it'll alleviate, trust me, it's a good idea because it kills me how in terms of our game, Everybody will will be in the comments breaking down world champions squats for God's sake. So you should have done this, should have done. Everybody is so knowledgeable when it comes to programming and technique, but nobody knows anything with handling, including rules or simple things with handling, or even acknowledge at certain points that handling's a part of it. And they're like, nah, we just go head to head and the better, the better lift, stronger person wins. And it doesn't even matter who's handling us. As a matter of fact, well, the same person handling us. It's like this is crazy. This needs to, you know, it's the one thing that I still hope the rest of the, that's why I'm glad a book like this will come out and be like, just dive in, please dive in. If even if you know what, if you're, even if you're an athlete, get it, read it. So, you know, cause maybe you don't assume your coach does. Cause I know enough coaches that don't God bless. It is what it is. But um, yeah, you, you do very thorough scenarios and, and break down and then real life scenarios about subtotalers, deadlifters and whatever taking control, assuming control and, and how it can happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So God bless it, anybody who's got a tight competition. They don't know what they're doing. And, and in the other corners, Matt Gary and Arian Messi Messi. It's like, well, I hope your lifter's a stronger lifter. Like Matt said, I hope you're, I hope that's your guy who's stronger. And even if you fumble the ball, you have to really fumble the ball. 
I mean, that's how I see when I when I go to meets. Like, I remember um, even like a couple years ago going to high school nationals because, like, at some of those nationals, like high school, you can get the the variety of like it's a high school team coach or it could just be like a parent or like you know a personal coach like me. And so if I saw someone like a um, Joe Lewis who's been coaching in high school level and on national teams for forty years, I'm like, okay, he knows what he's doing. He knows the rules. He's worked with a lot of kids at different levels. He's know how to pick them. But if I see someone else and it's like, oh yeah, my my dad's handling me. I just bought his membership yesterday so he can come back here then I'm like okay this might be a little bit easier for me i can trick him here and there or you know game him a little bit yeah for sure yeah th- th- those are the types of people you know that that you know fake openers and and those sorts of things you're gonna you're gonna dupe those people into you know um either under or overestimating you and so you know you're not you're not as likely you know with those sort of scenarios to to fake somebody out at a at a at a world championships i mean you still can but oftentimes you know you won't so i but. i've one story real quick i i'm for a deadlifting situation calf we got his himself i've said this before some people might have heard it but calf we got onto the world team one time we were in a tough battle this kid um was a subtotaler calf we broke the world record with deadlifts and we knew to your point that you had said earlier he was going to go for a national record, but we also knew he was going to build the majority of his total in the subtotal. And um, when you missed your third squat, we knew he'd try to apply pressure to go bigger on his bench because he's a big bench and he needs to cover ground. And then it, it, the momentum, once you get the deads, it could be all unraveled. So we put a fake deadlift opener, but not crazy. Mm-hmm. I told Caffey, it's got to be believable, but mm-hmm. it's got to be big. It's got to be big enough that he's like, if he misses, he's going to feel pressure to start going, well, let's go on the A side. You know how you have ABC for, for your squat and bench attempts, okay? Mm-hmm. If you're not having a great day, you sh- if you miss your third squat on bench, you should probably go B or C for your set. But if you missed it and you see that deadlift opening, you're like, we have to go A anyways. We'll just force it. I'll talk my, don't worry. Let me get my hype song on. Whatever. You're going to, but that deadlift opener is not real. And you're supplying pressure, but it's believable. It's fucking believable because you know Caffey's a monster deadlifter. Like, has he gone that much up and dead? Maybe. <laughs> Fuck me. We gotta, we gotta go A. We gotta go the A. And so, so you're not like nobody thinks they're gonna get stronger than they are in bench. They're just gonna take the A option when they're having a B day. And that's where you apply pressure, realistic pressure with a fake deadlift opener. And it's it's it, but it's fake, but it's believable. And then you bring the deadlift down to what you're actually were, do your appropriate jumps. And by the second attempt, Caffey had already won a battle that on paper was super duper close. And, um, and the third dead was just all YOLO dead. Have fun. What do you want to do? Things like this happen though. And people get pulled out of pocket. And, um, and if you come in already knowing he's a, to your point and everyone read the book, you talk about subtotals and how, how, if you're deadlifter, the battle subtotal, blah, blah, blah. You talk about strategies a lot, but it's just, it's good just to have these things in mind and realize if it's happening to you and, and your lifter is like, fuck, we're starting to miss. This guy's got a massive deadlifter. If I don't hang in the pocket, hang in the pocket here. I think this is a B day. Okay. And we're going to, we need to go three for three on bench. And then, well, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen in deadlift. Let's just see what he does because I'll believe it when I get there, he could hit his opener, nothing else. So don't, don't know if he opens there, where's the ending? I don't know. I've seen it all in commentating, right? <laughs> I've seen Matt Gary. I've seen Arian Kabesi. I've seen it all, but um, in fake attempts. Uh, if we got a minute, sorry, Arian. Uh, no just off the top of my head, people do fake attempts or like where they don't take it. 
they'll 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 balk at a second, come out all in for the third. Things like that happen. We saw Mill Norling do it in the juniors, um, and, and kind of just like, look at, I'm just going to go all in on my third and, and keep my energy for my for all in on my third attempt. I got my opener and I know I'm my total sees, and I'm just it's all or nothing for me. We you see all types of weird stuff, and then you see other people who do that and just do that to do that without an actual strategy. And it's like, you better be the biggest deadlifter in the room. If you're doing this, like, are you sure that what you're doing? Cause you might've needed that second attempt. Some people just do it to do it. Cause they saw someone else do it before. This is team Sweden. They're, they're killers. They're sharks. They know what a mill had. They knew we need you hundred percent fresh. Um, and we'll just cover where you're at. They won't see how big your final dead is because it's hard without seeing the second. They they know what they're doing. Some people watch that and at a smaller meet be like, fucking don't take your second goal in on your third and see what happens. Like, do you, you better be really sure what you're doing here. (laughs) Yeah. if If you wind up to your point, if you wind up passing your second or putting in a number that you have no intention of taking and then timing out. And then, like you said, basically pushing all your chips into the table for your third one. Um, you're forfeiting because you only get nine attempts, man. That's you're, you're giving up 11% of your opportunity to score points. And so I'm not a believer in that strategy whatsoever. Um, I, I, I honestly can't think, I mean, the only time I talk about, I do talk about this in the manual where you would intentionally pass on a third. I mean, obviously, if your lifter hits a second attempt and it's an RPE 10 and they don't have a kilo more, you know, for whatever reason, they get out of position or they just don't have it on the day. And the second one has turned out to be heavier. And you're kind of weighing that risk versus reward. You know, do I really want my lifter coming out for a third squat attempt when we're only going to get a couple extra kilos? At that point, you're probably better off saving it for the bench and the deadlift and just giving them an extra time to kind of, you know, rest and and relax but in terms of actually passing on the second attempt you're giving up an opportunity to score points to put points on the board and then putting unnecessary pressure on yourself to make it on the third one because like you said if you don't make the third one then you damn well better be the best deadlifter at the whole at the whole place uh, Mill Norling is obviously Mr. Miracle Deadlift, so it's a little different too. That's yeah. why when he does it, and other people right. want to be a Mill Norling, this guy, this is what he does. He yeah. he freaking wins world titles ever since he's a junior with his last deadlift. So it's different. Um, to your point, you did it. That's a very good point. I've talked to people, high level people, be like, I don't not come out for third. It's like a sense of pride. I show my heart. I show, but it's like my friend, um, for two and a half kilos or whatever you're going up. If you empty that fucking tank for two and a half kilos, we already talked about percentages. If even if you hit, if you drain your battery and now you're going to start, now you're just depleted for bench, depleted for dead for two and a half kilos, you redline it. Or if you miss, you drain the tank and miss. It's the same deal. The propensity to probably miss later on because you drain the tank. It it isn't, it's... it's not about just that like win you show your heart and winning in the long run. Yes. Sometimes I've seen it as well, where it's like, yes, if your second attempt was all you had, but you got it, you don't come out for a third just because you have a third. If you know your coach looks in your eyes, like you're going to fail. And I know the stats on what happens once you fail, you're going to drain the tank fail. You don't got to prove to me you're a fucking tough guy. We're here to yeah. win. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. We're here to win. No, you're, we're walking away from this. 
You know, I love it when a lifter does that. And 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 sometimes I hear people like, nah, you always come out. You no, just this isn't Rocky. This is one you're not quitting a right. boxing match. You're trying right. to win a powerlifting meet. Um if you're done on squats, you're done. And you know sometimes people are done on their second. You're like, I bet the house. Certain people are different, penna, whatever the shit, very difficult to tell. But <laughs> right. again, there's always outliers where it's like, I have no idea. But yeah. Yeah. I even, I even mentioned also in the book that, and Arian's familiar with these scenarios as well. You know, it's rare, but occasionally you might have a spotter interference on an attempt or something. And if this, you know, if you're straining really hard and the bar dips and then it comes back up, you know, obviously once the bar goes down after it's begun its ascent, the lift is technically over. But sometimes, you know, a lifter is, is shaking and the spotter, you know, um, through no fault of their own, because they're there to save the lifter and protect the lifter, they might get there a little bit early and take the attempt. And then if the if the jury table or the referees say that that's a spotter interference, they'll often award another attempt to the lifter. But what they wind up doing is they say, oh, well, you can take that attempt at the end of the round. But what if you're squatting early in the third series? So, you know what I'm saying? It's like you've got to almost essentially follow yourself so it's that that becomes another scenario, right? You have to weigh, you know, gosh, am I going to take this extra attempt? And then I wind up squatting four times instead of, you know, just three attempts. And so all of this calculus kind of needs to take place. And there's not a knee jerk response or a, or a you know, um, for lack of a bit, there's not, you just can't rubber stamp it and say, well, this is what you do in that scenario. It's got to go on a lifter to lifter basis, you know, because if you have somebody like you said, like a penna who can grind for days, you know, it's, it's much different, but you know, all these scenarios, you know, come up and, and you need to be, to, to be able to consider them and, and, and know how to adjust accordingly. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say there's, there's no way to like calculate it. Like let's say you have a flight of like eight lifters, like, oh, Delphs are going fast. So we'll pass on our second, save our energy for third. Well, how much energy are you saving to be able to do however many more kilos by going from eight lifter rest to 16 lifter rest? Right. It's very hard to calculate. And then, yeah, the, the, the risk to reward is like, yeah, he, I'm looking at meals attempts and they jumped 25 kilos. So if you miss the third, you lost out on maybe 15 kilos, 20 kilos that can really change your placing. So like, what's the risk there to save an extra seven or eight minutes to recover. So it, it's really tough to uh, calculate, but I do this, the same thing. If someone really grinds out a second attempt squat, let's say, and you know, it's yeah. going to affect their delve. It's like, what's the point of getting an extra two and a half kilos on squat. If it's going to drain you like five or seven and a half kilos on deadlift, yeah. you might as well just yeah. pass, give them some extra rest and start warming up for bench press and save that energy for the deadlift. Yeah, and you're, you know, to your point right there, you're, you're, if that were to happen on a on a second bench, where if they absolutely hit a limit lift or a grinder of a second bench, you're probably more likely to come out for that third bench than a third squat. However, I think we all know and can attest to the fact that sometimes benching and getting into that arch position can fatigue your back as much, if not more, than squat. Big so time. if you're only yeah, so it's like setting up for the bench press and getting in that arch position can really fatigue you and fry your back. So again, if it's like, gosh, if it's just for an extra two and a half kilos, and I know, I mean, in the 50, in the 47 and the 52s and the 57 kilo weight classes, man, you're fighting tooth and nail for every single kilo, like two and a half kilos can be huge, man. Yeah, It can be huge. But again, there's, so there's not this stock reply, but you just kind of ask yourself, gosh, is it really worth it? And if it's for one of your bigger lifters, who's big and strong and they hit a limit lift on the second attempt. It's like, nah, man, you're to hit the, go back in the, 
in the warm-up room, like, you know, get ready for deadlifts or something or get ready for the bench or whatever discipline, because this is just not worth it. You're going to fatigue yourself too much. And, and that's going to mean a lower total at the end of the day. Yeah. It, I was looking at that battle with uh, Emil Norling, the one I think you're talking about, Ryan, and yeah, maybe, maybe they had some additional like knowledge on what they knew Emil was capable of, even though they're national team coaches, they probably seen his training. And also it looks like third place was a big enough drop down, like 30, 35 kilos down. So they were just pushing all their chips in like, hey, we're battling first or second, maybe save our energy, go all out for first. If we don't get it, we still get second. Versus if you're in some other kind of battle, you could be falling to third, fourth, fifth by doing that kind of jump. So yeah, like Matt says, really case by case. And some of these things as a coach, you just have to make a decision and then, you know, analyze after a fact, whether you thought it was good or bad and there's no way to know going in. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Do you got some more questions in there, dude? Cause we got quite a bit in here on, on his, uh, it just depends how, how much more do you want to go? Cause I know you have your next meeting in less than 20 minutes. I see, I see. Grab the ones you want. You got any, <laughs> any, uh, cause we got some, we got some like case studies and I'm wondering if there's a way you guys can continue this. Even if I go into my meeting, I mean, we can, we can go into, um, the, the final point I had as far as like, um, what additional considerations do you do when it's not just a regular weight class battle on total, when it comes to like the pro series and it's on dots, or when it comes to Sheffield and it's on percentage of the world record, what additional research are you doing in scouting to prepare for that? Well, I think so. Yeah. So I just want to thank Jason Tremblay because Jason and I collaborated together on the scouting chapter. Um, and so I kind of collaborated with the strength guys, as Aria knows, for the last couple of years and in putting together a formal scouting report because we kind of we saw a need for that in the um, just in the coaching landscape of being able to put together a, a D. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going on, you know. I'm going on the gram to look at somebody's lifts or I'm going on to YouTube to follow their lifting or something and say, I'm doing scouting, but it's another thing to actually comb through the data and everybody can go to open powerlifting. You can go to, you know, these websites and the databases and so forth, but it's most people don't use that data. Well, they don't comb through it appropriately. And so what Jason and I did, um, and I think Arian kind of threw his two cents into the project as well is um, we came up with a formal scouting report to understand um the tendencies of lifters and the the progressions that they were they were taking in every discipline. So we examined how much weight were they taking on average from their first to second attempt, and then more importantly, what the spread was from first to third, if in fact they were successful. And so we're looking at the spread of kilos on average that lifters are taking between their first and third attempts. We're looking at the percentages of how often they make their third attempts, if they're making their third attempts at nationals, if they're making their third attempts at worlds. Oh, by the way, their PB total, that was at a local meet. And here's how they often perform at their nationals. And here's how their total tends to trend downward at worlds and so forth. So we're taking all of these things into consideration, putting together a scouting report so that we have that information in our hip pocket. And so when we see the numbers go up at the beginning of the day, we have a really good idea of where you know, roughly an estimation of where our lifters are thinking or trying to end or what their strategy might be based off of those opening attempts. And so, I mean, I think we do our due diligence for all of these meets. You guys have talked about this extensively on the podcast and I applaud you for that. I mean, I am all about the head to head battles and the head to head matchups and who the hell wants to pull out a freaking calculator to figure out who the hell wins a powerlifting meet, right? Kilos are the ultimate metric, right? Who's the strongest? 
You know, people want to see head-to-head matchups. You don't want to be thinking, well, this person weighed five kilos more than the other person. And so it doesn't matter which metric you use. One metric is always going to be weighted toward a certain weight class. And as you've said many times on the podcast, if we redo the metrics and then we look at the results from competitions, the results can change. Yeah. You know, we have, a, we have a different winner, you know, because the metric changes and so forth. So, but anyway, to your point, Arian, we do have to learn how to coach in these competitions. And so the scouting is clearly important. It's obviously, you know, um, now they've got, you know, we've got these apps now that we can all use uh, to determine the, the, the point scoring. And I think I actually, I had reached out to Pete Spence. And so I hope I'm okay saying this, but I think like at the Sheffield, they're going to wind up using a version of, of lifting cast and they are going to add an additional column at the end, which will say the forecast of percentage over world record. So um, I know personally, and I know that that some other coaches have done this, um, you know, that we're going to be at the Sheffield had already created Excel files on their own. And I'd, I'd done the same thing for myself, you know what I mean? Um, just so that I could plug in numbers at subtotal and then kind of adjust from there after deadlift. So, so at a meet like Sheffield, you know, it's, it's cool because the scoreboard presumably is just going to have the built-in metric that you're that you're chasing right which is percentage over the world record total and so so coaches and lifters should be able to look at the score and see okay with this next deadlift that will put me matter of factly over the world record um but as we know currently the sheffield is the only competition that's using that that you know for lack of a better word formula if you will to determine the winners at others, it's you know it's it's dots or it's good lift points or whatever metric they're using. So um, if the score sheet, like a lifting cast or a good lift, doesn't contain those metrics built into it, and they usually do, it'll say forecast dots or forecast points or whatever. So usually you can refer to the score sheet. It's a good idea for the game day coach to have access to that metric somehow on a device you know, whatever, presumably their smartphone or something where they can plug in some numbers and play around with that or create an Excel file. Because if God forbid you don't have an, an internet connection or you lose your Wi-Fi or something like that, you got to kind of have a backup plan. You know what I mean? I know that um, a good friend of mine, that's what he had in place uh, coaching at the Virginia Pro. He had built a spreadsheet just in case, you know, Patrick Carr had a spreadsheet to use for dots, just in case that the, for some reason, the scoring program went down or something. He had that as a backup where he can insert those metrics and, and so forth. So, you know, in those situations where you're coaching for, you know, for a, a dots and so forth and, 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 and the placings are determined that way, you know, it's, um, it, we'll see more attempts being made at those lifts or at those at those meets, and I I mentioned that a little bit in my book too, because when people don't feel like they have to cut weight, it's it's like they can. I mean, some cut weight because they intentionally want their score to go up, their dot score or whatever. But a lot of these lifters will not cut weight; they'll just weigh what they weigh, and it seems to be that then their performances are more predictable because they're judging themselves over. Hey, I hit this weight in training when I was two kilos over and I showed up at the meet and because I didn't have to make weight, I'm two kilos over. So I can judge my attempts over really what I did in training. That training evidence is more true, if you will. You know, so there's generally a higher percentage. I don't know if you've noticed that also. There's a higher percentage of attempts made at a lot of these meets where you don't have to make weight 
And that's yeah. because people, not as many people are cutting, right? And so that, you know, and some people might find that as an advantage. It, it, maybe that's better sport in regard that there's, uh, in, in the respect that there's more lifters making more attempts and, and more made attempts are fun to watch. I mean, nobody wants to see everybody strike out all the time. You know what I mean? But having said all of that, the decisions, you know, come into play of, you know, I need to maximize my lifters total to get this, this metric. And so it's, again, it's not something that I'm too fond of because I like these head to head battles, but I mean, it's something that you, you know, look, the landscape of powerlifting is changing and, you know, coaches like us, you know, Arian and myself and others who coach at these high level meets, um, you have to learn how to do that. And so you've got to have some of these, these tools up your sleeve, you know, to, to adequately quantify these metrics, if you will. I want to ask you uh, while we got you, because PA Nats is around the corner. Um, Ray Williams. Let me just, first off, holy shit, Ray's back. Okay, this is crazy. Um, everybody's excited. Now, Ray Williams has an opportunity. And my goodness, has the, have the stars aligned my friend? He can become the, the American champion. Hit Carpino one. Go to the world championship and clinch. Would this be six? Title number six? World title? This is, and if he does, first off, he's the GOAT. He's already the GOAT, but my goodness. And then Jesus Oliveras over in Sheffield could do the tested world record, untested world record, as well as possibly win Sheffield with how this young man's putting up. Imagine finishing this year with Jesus having broken those world records, tested and untested, all-time world record at Sheffield. If he beats Taylor and wins Sheffield, oh my gosh, even if he doesn't, he's still it's still incredible. And then Ray is is now the reigning world champion for the sixth time, unprecedented already at five, but six at the IPF Worlds. The second half of 2023, if these colossal giants clash and anybody, listen to me, SPD, if you're listening, get them to Arnold Europe, get them to, you know, this is can't miss. This is can't miss uh, entertainment here. This is better. It, Ray winning a world title and then them clashing is like, okay, in terms of selling it. Um, crazy, my friend. What are your expectations at Ray at PA Nats? And like, what's the game plan here? What are we looking at? Well, and I know that's what you're praying for, like, like in your in Ryan's perfect world, right? Because you're you're such a you're a hopeless. I know, uh, I know it is. It's a great world, and God bless you, man. I know that's what you want. You want Ray to make the team. Yeah. You want you want Jesus to knock it out of the park at Sheffield. Knock it out the park. And you want for the U.S. national team to not take two supers, so no, that Ray. One. Just one, so that Ray can claim the sixth title at Worlds, yeah. presumably, and then have them clash down. <laughs> Dana White would call if this happens the way I just said. <laughs> Dana White is going to get on the phone and be like, "How do I get you guys on the other card of the next UFC?" Right. You know, I mean, yeah. I would love. Listen, if Jesus makes a world, like obviously, I'm, I'm not cheering against Jesus making a world teams. I'm just saying, if he doesn't, I'd be the first to tell Jesus, my friend, don't don't fret. You could not set up the movie better. You, you, Ray Williams, if you face Ray having just won the world championships for an unprecedented sixth time, and now he's the world champion, you could not have laid the table better, my friend. 
Don't, if this is the greatest consolation prize you've ever heard. And while in the short run, you'll be like, damn it, I missed out on that. In the long run, you'll be like, that was, that was a movie. We're about to make a movie in the second half of 2023. Yeah, you are, kid. Yeah, you are. And the, and the whole world will stop to watch it. If you thought people would stop to watch Ray versus Jesus now, let Jesus become the world, or let Ray become the world champion and Jesus be the Sheffield, you know, dynamo he's going to be. Then let them clash. My friend, but um, that's that's my world, and, and it's sunny, and the, and the flowers are beautiful, and you know, money Not, off trees. And, and I think Aaron and I both know that probably, I mean, what what would probably happen just from looking at the other weight classes and so forth, given given the roster that's coming into PA Nats, and then giving the roster that's coming into the Sheffield, you know, it it would look like potentially they could take two, you know, supers, two one twenty pluses, because, you know, I mean, barring a mishap, you're you're all but guaranteed, you know, a silver and a gold. And that's 21 points for your team right there at 12 and a nine national team points. But yes, to your point, Ryan, um, if you were going to script it, if you were going to write a movie, you know, that would be the ideal, you know, storybook or the or the clash of the Titans matchup would be would be the scripted in that way where they kind of met, you know, after the fact. Um, yeah, but I mean, look, it's, it's, I'm not going to lie. Um, it has been an extraordinarily challenging year for Ray, um, without going into a lot of detail, um, about his personal life, because I would let him speak to that more than I, but for those of you that have followed along and kind of tracked his, his life recently, you know, that Ray moved, um, about halfway across the country, kind of, he moved from Mississippi to Virginia. He started a new job and a new career. He's, he's, um, he's managing a gym in Virginia. And so he literally just moved here a couple of weeks ago. And as you all know, you know how stressful moving can be. Um, and on top of that, you know, he's got a, he's got a little one uh, in tow that he's been taking care of. And he just got done doing his PhD and his wife is now pursuing her PhD and so on and so forth. And none of that is said to make an excuse. None of it. We don't make excuses. We roll with the punches. Every single person has their own story, their own challenges, their own hurdles. All of it is to say is that it's been a challenging year. And so, yeah, look, we're coming into uh, to PA Nationals next week. And um, yeah, that's the objective, right? That's the table that's been set before us is to win and achieve that Carpino one total. And so, um, you know, without, without giving up too much information, um, that's our goal. That's our objective is to go there and obviously first is to win um and 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 then secondly is to win while securing that carpino one and so if you do that according to the information that pa has put out that punches your ticket to go to malta and then we let the rest we, we, we let the rest of the story be written as you said ryan uh with what happens at sheffield and so on and so forth and so we focus on the things that we can control and the rest of it is quite frankly trivial um, that's outside of our circle of control. So we we control the things that we can and, and what we can control is him coming to PA Nationals next week or this week, I should say, and executing is doing his job. And so um, we're going to we're going to put forth our best effort. I I um. Well, first off, I mean, Ray's Ray. Everyone goes, I, I can't imagine worlds with Ray back again now and what people are going to react to him. I don't know if you're on TikTok, buddy, but I posted Ray's squat <laughs> that he did in December on yeah. TikTok and it got 1.4 million views. Um, and it's got yeah. like hundreds of thousands of likes. People just going nuts. And they're like, he's back, he's back. 
Um, <laughs> and I'm like, tune into PA Nats. We'll see. Um, so him and Malta, it's going to be nuts. Whether it's Jesus and him in Malta, people go nuts. Or whether or whether he's just doing his damn thing and like people are going to go nuts. Um, what do you, what do you think? We give we gave percentages on our Carpino scores. Can you, percentage? Can you give your percentage, or what do you think? I'm I'm, I'm going to refrain. I need to hold. <laughs> I, I need to hold my cards close to my vest um, on this one. And, okay, and, and fair. Yeah. But uh, mind. But but we all know that Carpino's got that's the that's the big one. Carpino Carpino is uh is the name of the game when it comes into these peanuts. I think people who previously walked into these peanuts had no idea what Carpino was. And by the time they're done listening to all these podcasts and done listening to live stream, like, yeah, I gotcha. I understand what it's all about. And people are like, he's one. What is he? What's the significance of him doing this, that, and the other? No, we are there's a bigger picture going on. Um, yeah, I can't wait, man. It was it was weird because last year was was Jesus hitting 992 squat and beating his chest and doing the whole it was amazing. And then yep. this year Jesus is gone and we have Ray. And it's um something special, man. If 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 somebody hasn't seen Ray in if, you know perform on a live stream or in person, you gotta get there. Yeah, when you when you have lifters of that physical stature and of that strength, it's it's must see TV, man. And, and and when you can be in the same room when those types of weights and those titans are literally walking around and executing and lifting, it's fun to watch, no matter what the outcome is. Aaron, you got um, you got anything else you want to throw out there? I told my my people I could might be a few minutes late. I mean, we went through a lot. If no one wants to buy the ebook by now, I don't know what else we could do. But I don't, I don't know if Matt has some some final words or some thank you, shout outs, yeah. that kind of stuff. Or if there's anything in the book you think we didn't touch, Matt, here's a good time because I told my meeting people, give me a few minutes. Yeah, I think, I mean, you guys, um, yeah, I think you guys did um, did did the book a good service in terms of, of highlighting, I think, you know, what the, what the ebook talks about. I'll just say that, like I said, it's, it's so much more than attempt selection and strategy. It's 20 chapters. It's about 183 pages long. Um, it has truly been a passion project of mine. And it's something that I put a lot of, um, a lot of time, a lot of thought and effort into, and, and just 28 years of experience and 28 years of being in the trenches and, and coaching, you know, at the local level meets all the way up to the world games and everything in between. And I tried to just share as much as I can. And so my goal is, is like I said, to put the most comprehensive text out there that I possibly could that covered all the angles, as many possible scenarios that I could think of. Naturally, you're not going to think of every single one, but you think of just about every imaginable scenario, um, coaching philosophy, coaching psychology, um, making weight, of course. I want to thank Kedrick Kwan. He um, helped me and he wrote, um, for the most part, um, the chapter on making weight. I could not have done that without him. He's been a huge help, um, you know, and he's matter of factly helped uh, lifters, you know, uh, like Taylor Atwood and many others um, make weight and, and manage that aspect of competition. So if you want to, if you need to cut for competition, that's huge. Um, and then from warming up and strategy and attempt selection, and I talk about things that you may not even think of, like load management in terms of like, warming up too heavy or warming up too light and how that might affect your performance on game day. 
and all those sorts of things. I also discuss the influence of social media on our sport and the role that that's played, um, because we all know that it's played a huge role in our sport in helping push our sport forward. Um, and then there's also some access of, of social media that may not be so attractive, and I kind of delve into those and so forth. So um, anyway, I think the book is really comprehensive. And, and like you all said, I think it can help uh, the novice up to the elite and the coach and lifter alike, and even people who aren't powerlifters, but just do the big three lifts, you know, for people who want to warm up for a test day or something like that, it can just make them think a little bit more clearly. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we covered literally everything in the book. I'm just flattered and honored to be here. I appreciate both of you um, having me and and the opportunity to to speak about this. Also, if you don't mind, can I thank a few people just well, while we're course. at it? Perfect. So um, one of the first thing I want to do, um, and I talked about this early on in the book, is I just want to, um, without getting too preachy, is I want to thank God, man, um, for creating me. And for I, I believe that each one of us has specific talents and specific gifts. And I feel like I've been given the gift of teaching, which is coaching, because coaching is teaching. And so I literally and figuratively with this book wanted to pour back into the community and wanted to lift up the community. So I thank God for giving me that talent. Um I mentioned in the dedication to the book, I wanted to thank my mother um, for serving as an example. You know, my mom fought multiple sclerosis for nearly half her life. And so she taught me what it meant um, to be tough. And um, it's not, you know, strength is not just measured in the kilos that you lift, but it's also mentioned or it's also um, it's also displayed in your character and the way that you carry yourself. And so um, I want to thank my mother for that. Clearly my wife, Susie, for, for all the love and support and encouragement. I want to thank Dr. Eric Helms. Um, you know, Ryan, you were just on his podcast with, with Omar and, um, and Eric. And Eric was hugely instrumental in guiding me through the process of getting this book into its written form. And so I want to thank him because I got on many consultation calls with Eric and he helped to steer me and mold me and mentor me through this process. So I just want to thank him. His encouragement has been invaluable. Naturally, I want to thank Jason Tremblay, of course, because he helped me with the scouting chapter. Kedrick Kwan, as I said, because we collaborated on the making weight chapter. I want to thank each and every single lifter that I've ever coached. Um, because you all bless me with your effort. You bless me with your execution and, and you bless me with your coachability. Um, and even the lifters that I've encountered, encountered that Arian and I have talked about that have been abrasive and the very few that have been uncoachable. I want to thank you too, because um, you, you, you show me what I'm looking for and you show me um, the coaches and the people that I want to surround myself with. And then lastly, I want to thank Arian. Arian, thank you for leading this podcast and for being my trusted colleague and my peer and also something that I look to and something that I, I look forward to coaching with you. I look forward to coaching against you because um, guys like you who are really good at this make me better. And of course, Ryan, I just want to thank you and just King of the Lifts, man, for, for providing this platform. Um, it sounds cliche, but I've said it before. You've been one of my biggest proponents and one of my biggest cheerleaders and man, I love you for that. And I'm so indebted to you and so thankful. And, and mostly because of what you're doing and what this podcast is doing to push this sport forward. Um, I can't say that enough. So I just, God bless you both, man. I just thank you both so much for, for giving me this opportunity to come on here and talk about my passion, but just moreover in general for pushing this sport forward because it's people like you two that are helping to take this sport to the next level. And I'm just very thankful. Dude, uh, right back at you. I mean, listen, 
you are a bridge to our past in terms of all of all of your knowledge that you bring from right back into the 90s and all of the war stories and experience you have right into like just where the federations began like you're one of the forefathers and it's something to sit down with a guy like you who was there like i was there before usapl was even existence i was there when it's created i was there when you know and just to like it is something man like when someone like that walks in a room you get him a chair at your table you know you 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 do these things and um and again, like, uh, and if anyone's listening to podcasts, they, uh, this is the blind spot that I think people have when it comes to um, the game and how much handling is a massive, you know, it's a massive thing. And when you talk to people who know, talk to someone who knows the game, say Matt Gary, and they should know who Matt Gary is. Um, and they should know all about him. You know, uh, I think Gavin said, there's a lot of goats. There's one hyena. Yeah. You know what he's referring to, Matt Gary. Look at there's a lot of goats out there these days, huh? <laughs> Get yourself a fucking hyena if you're gonna battle goats. <laughs> Buy the freaking book for God's sake. And um, if you're a coach. It, it just buy it and it's money well spent. I don't know how you can be a coach handling people and not consider this a fucking how much is it, Matt? How much is the book? It's $65. $65 is the smallest investment you can have to being a better coach. $65 and you're going to become a better, guaranteed you're going to learn because I know I learned from it and I've been doing this forever. There's no way a coach came in for $65, you're going to be a better coach and you have it from here on out. You can put it on your freaking phone. It's it's an ebook. Yeah, grab it. Grab it and just please learn something about game day coaching and um, it'll give you those advantages when you need it. If, if nothing else, you don't have to have an uncomfortable conversation with your lifter afterwards when they're like, Hey, some people came up to me afterwards. Ought you have known this, that, and the other? Did I lose out because this, that, and the other? Because people will jump in DMs and be like, hey, you know what happened to you, huh? <laughs> That's what happens these days, right? So don't do it or don't make it an awkward recap event on a podcast. I'm like, oh, shit, somebody <laughs> dropped the ball there. This is awkward for me to talk about. It always happens. Mistakes happen, but... If it's through ignorance, here's an opportunity. Educate yourselves. Uh, Matt, dude, what am I going to say? You you, you were doing podcasts with me from 2016. We we're doing preview shows and whatever. Yeah, man. Obviously, the door is always open, man. Um, Thank you so much. I think the world of you, I'm going to see you in a few days. Arian, I'm, boys, we're going we're gonna to be talking yeah, in man. a few days' time. Yeah. We'll see you at PA Nets. Look, looking forward to it. Dinner on, dinner on Sunday night and every night in between. We're going to hit up that barbecue on Saturday, too. Yeah, we'll have plenty of time to hang out, fellas. Yeah, All right, sure. everybody, it, wherever platform you're listening on, please do subscribe. Give us high ratings. By all means, tag us. We will repost. Until next time, six-pack lap it at six up, and we are out.